0: Voices that inspire the extended interview.
1: My name is Andrew Frank. I'm a history professor at Florida State University, and I'm also our director of our Native American and Indigenous Studies Center.
0: So how did you get interested in Native Americans?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would not have predicted it. Um, In hindsight, I grew up in South Florida. Um, I went to a school called Seminole Middle School, I grew up in a town called Plantation, of all things, and I went to graduate school after I think six or seven different majors, and I landed on history, and I fell in love, and I really thought I was going to study the early South, kind of the origins of really slavery, Um, and I found myself back in Florida, at the University of Florida, getting a PhD, and one thing led to another, and I was working on a project in early Virginia, and I didn't imagine myself doing native history and I found myself noticing, well, natives are part of the story. I should take a course on it. And so I took an anthropology class as a MA student and went off to an archive thinking I was going to do research not on Native Americans but on this thing that might have a native component to it and I found someone um, who was doing my project and he was four years ahead of me at a different university and he seemed to be asking the same types of questions I thought I was going to ask and I came home and I told my anthropologist – And he had, well, that's too bad. You'll find something else. Meanwhile, I was in Oklahoma, and I have this really cool story. What do you think about it? And he told me the story about white indentured servants in the American South who ran from their masters or owners, um, married Indian women, and took the Trail of Tears um, and became Creek Indians. And I had never heard anything like this before. He gave me the name of the two towns that they were supposedly to form. And I turned it into a semester-long project which became a dissertation, which became my first book and kind of the trajectory of my career, and I haven't looked back. And so as much as I went to Seminole Middle School, I actually didn't know there were Seminoles in South Florida in any sort of real way, didn't know anyone, I had never been to the reservation, I had seen alligator wrestling once or twice, I had gone on the jungle cruise for a field trip. But those felt more like Disney World, they didn't feel like authentic indigenous people. and so I thought of Indians living in the past, but not really as neighbors. So it wasn't until really being a young adult that I kind of grasped onto Native studies as something that I would make my career on or even care about. It's, I don't like saying that in hindsight, but that's the truth.
0: That's that's It's so interesting how people land on their path and passion. You know, it, it really is. So thinking of Native Americans... The land we're right here. What what Native population lived in this right here in this region?
1: So lots of groups um, see Tallahassee or the Big Bend as their homelands. And so you can start with the Seminole people, um, but also the Muscogee Creek see this as their homelands. The Appalachee see this as their homelands. And then there were people who um, predate both of those communities. So like what is now the United States has been occupied or lived on by Native people for Forever. Um, depending on who asks, it's 14,000 years or this is where man was created. And so the names that we call those people, um, they're going to change based on what, what scholar you're talking to. But Seminoles and Muscogees in particular see this area as the place where their ancestors have always been.
0: And are they still here?
1: Well, are they still here? There's two ways to answer. So the Seminoles and Muskogees are – there are two Seminole tribes that are federally recognized. There's the Seminole nation in Oklahoma and there's a Seminole tribe in Florida. There's a Muskogee Creek nation in Oklahoma and there's some other Creek peoples. Um, And so they still exist um, and there are some individuals of both nations or all the nations or those communities who see Tallahassee and live in Tallahassee. But their current homelands, their reservations, the place where they have governance – um, aren't in Tallahassee anymore.
0: Yeah, well, they were—they were driven out pretty they much. They were driven out. in the Trail of Tears, um, part of that, that history. So, I love what you're doing now with this idea of creating a center that's part of Florida State University that's going to be looking at ways to have information flow more. I don't, and more easily between the Seminole Nation as well as our students to, to put a, a more of a spotlight on this very important relationship that Florida State has with the Seminole Nation. T- talk a little bit about the center.
1: Well, our center's with the Seminole tribe. So, this is the important distinction. So, the Seminole Nation's in Oklahoma. Um,
0: so the Seminole Tribe. So the
1: Seminole Tribe of Florida is our major partner, and we'll partner with the Seminole Nation and some other indigenous um, communities. Um, but our, our first obligation is to um, work with the Seminole Tribe, not just to educate our students and our faculty and our staffs and our fans and our community um, as to who they are. That's part of what we have to do. Um, but there's a long history in academia of folks descending on an indigenous community, taking the data or the information they want and publishing it as if it's their own. Um, and many academics have made careers um, off of that type of information. And so what we're trying to figure out is how we can create something that is more of akin of a two-way relationship. So what questions do tribes have, the Seminoles being one of them, that we can help them answer? And then the final result is materials for them to use, not necessary materials for us to use. Um, and I think we have support of the university for, where that would count towards tenure and promotion, um, even if the ultimate result is not a, a peer-reviewed journal article, but rather something that we would call, say, community engagement.
0: I love this idea of community engagement. Is is that, is that a different kind of approach for a university, this idea of community engagement?
1: So community engagement is something that some departments and disciplines are very willing to see as legitimate. So if you go to the College of Education, they do lots of work where they're working with students and then they bring new curriculum into a classroom and then they test it, but they're also bringing the curriculum back to the classroom. There are other disciplines where this is a very foreign concept. Um, I'm in one of those disciplines. So if I were to give a public talk on my scholarship and the public talk the number of people in the room doesn't matter, but if they're not other academics and it's not going through peer review, that's considered service, not scholarship, and so, which, which is a very small part of our job description, right? And people are happy that you do it, but that's not why you get hired. That's not why you get retained. It's just something you kind of have to do or should do, and so trying to retool us as a profession or as a university to consider this as something not different um, and therefore inferior, but different and equal. Um, that's a challenge, and it's something we're going to figure out.
0: Definitely. So in your career, what have you loved about history and studying it and teaching it? You know, there's so much focus on STEM, as, and, and we know that's important. But so are, so are some of these um, humanity studies. We still need the humanities. So make make your case for why... We should still be thinking about history as an important part of a university
1: curriculum. Well, let me make the case for all of humanities. I'll do it all at once, but I can talk about the importance of history as well. So STEM allows us to live in many ways, right? Um, I certainly don't want to give up modern medicine. I love the fact that my bridges don't fall down on me. Um, but humanities are why we live, Um if there's a world without museums and there's a world without beautiful stories and there's a world without all the stuff that the humanities provides and our ability to understand it, um, right, we're, we're, just, we're just surviving. And so humanities for me provides, I don't know, the, the color to the rest of our life. Um, otherwise things are just sketches and they're important, uh, but I don't think you can have one without the other.
0: As an art history major and the daughter of a, a high school history teacher, I'm I'm there with you.
1: All right, we're we're, we're comrades in arms.
0: <laughs> we are definitely comrades, and I, you know, I'm a graduate of a small liberal arts college, so I totally believe in it. And I think it's important to remind people of that. And what you just said is so beautiful. It's the why of life. I mean, we need to be inspired by the people around us, the history before us, the the words that can help us get through tough times, you know, whether it's a beautiful book or a poem or something.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things for me is when we look at past civilizations around the globe, we often measure them by the great things that they've produced, not what allowed them pr- to produce it. And so we we talk about the great works of art and we, we talk about great literature and we talk about stories and we tell like ancient Greece, um, We see some of the architecture, but we talk about what they did in the architecture, not that it simply has survived. And we read the Iliad and we write – there are these other parts of life that that's what we use to measure. Um, And we say that they're a great civilization, not because they were big, um, not because they could just simply sustain life, but what sustaining life allowed them to do.
0: That's a good point. So all this work you do and you've been at FSU for 16 years now, what keeps you inspired? What keeps you – Meeting that new class every year and, you know, working with students, what what keeps you going at this?
1: Well, I say there's two things that keeps me going. So, one, in the field that I study, we're learning new things all the time and things and facts, if you will, that I thought I really knew even three, four, five years ago. I'm reconsidering um, in part because Native people are playing a larger role in the conversations and what types of questions we're asking and how to measure evidence – And that's been really exciting and so to be part of that is uh, there's this great huge puzzle out there and i'm getting to help solve it um and having collaborative work makes it even more fun right so often historians operate in isolation and like in the proverbial library by themselves and there's still a lot of that Uh, but engaging other people and trying to work things out together is um, really quite fun um When it comes to students, uh, teaching at Florida State brings a new generation of students every semester who know that they have Seminoles on their chest, at least the word Seminal on their chest or a logo. Um, They go to football games or other sporting events, but even if they don't, they know that somehow they should know something about Seminoles, or at least the students who sign up for my class assume that that's the case. And to be able to I mean, there are certain facts that you can tell them about Seminoles that they're surprised that they didn't know. And, and they're sometimes they're as simple as that the, the Florida Seminoles still exist, that, that there are about 44, 4,500 4, citizens of the tribe, that they have sovereignty, that they're both Florida citizens, U.S. citizens, as well as tribal citizens. Some of them don't know that they own the Hard Rock International. They can't imagine native people as being kind of capitalists in the modern world, or if they see that they're... Capitalists, they can't imagine why they would still be wearing patchwork or having chickies in their backyard. So they imagine that all of modernity works in lockstep. And so when they see seminals who are both culturally distinctive and engaged in the modern world as uh, as much as anyone, they find that just eye-opening. And so that's just to see those kind of students click, ah, uh, I get it, um, that's really quite fun.
0: I love that thought. That's really great. Are there any seminal students on campus?
1: We have a handful. Uh, We don't have a huge number of Seminole students on campus. I think that's one of the ambitions of the university is to, like, we're we're not going to force, obviously, anyone to come here, but to make FSU a more desired place or an even more desired place. Um, We are far from where the Seminoles live, and um, they can go wherever they like to go for college. And if they can get into Florida State, they can get into a lot of other schools as well. And so one of the things the center is going to try to do is provide a, 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 just another reason for them to come.
0: Before we end, I, I do want you just to set up the, the center and describe what its name and describe what its goal is.
1: So we have now a brand new center. It's called the Native American and Indigenous Studies Center. Um, we are just about to have an opening of a building early next year. It will be right on College Avenue, almost across the street from Westcott. So we have a very nice kind of location on campus. And our goal, I guess we have a handful of goals that we're going to try to do. And the first one is we're going to collaborate with indigenous communities, whether they're the Seminoles or Miccosukees in Florida or the Muscogee in Oklahoma or indigenous communities globally. That's one of the things that we really need to do is to find a way to get our students and our faculty to collaborate with indigenous communities. The second thing we're going to do is um, encourage research on campus, um, hopefully with tribes, not on tribes or in tribal communities. Um, but we already have lots of people on campus who are doing this type of work. And so with the resources of a center and a community of a center, I think we can put a thumb on the scale to get our students and faculty to do it a little bit more, to work together a little bit more, and to kind of raise the profile of what they're already doing. And so I think that is a, that's really exciting for me. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to build curriculum. Um, and I'll think of curriculum in two ways. So we'll, we'll build curriculum for, within the classroom. That's important, and it's uh, not that hard to do. We already have courses in different departments. Trying to figure out how you turn it into a certificate or something like that that's worthwhile, that'll take a little bit of time, but it's not very hard. The more exciting part is how you do curriculum outside of a classroom. So it can be passive education. It can be non-passive education. So what events or what types of things can we do on campus where every student and everyone walking across campus walks away after their four years with some knowledge of the Seminole tribe and indigenous people more generally? And so, so one idea that I have, I have all sorts of ideas, and I don't have permission yet for hardly any of them, but one idea would be as simple as for a handful of places on campus to have the signage be bilingual or trilingual. So, rather than just simply saying Department of History, can we have the phrase for Department of History in Muskogee uh, Muskogee Creek um, or in Miccosukee, the two languages that the Seminoles speak? Um, And there are other places on campus. Can you do that for the lakefront? Can you do that for I don't think every place should be bi or trilingual, but a handful of places. And so, when students come across it, they'll see it. And it may be jarring, but eventually it'll become normal that that's what they see, much the same way that you go onto an elevator and you see Braille. And then you are immediately reminded that there are folks who are have impaired sight, um, so we can do that um, on campus. And I think that's not that hard to do.
0: I I think it's just fascinating that how that there's still a live language that it's still spoken. I mean, I how many people probably don't even know that?
1: Well, I think that's actually really important, and so um, very few people know that. Seminoles speak languages other than English or even Spanish. Um, So they speak two different languages that are mutually unintelligible to each other. So they have these two languages that go back a very long time in their community that is very important to them. That's where their medicine and their religion is held and within language. Um, And it is, uh, it's important to them that these languages are kept alive And I don't know what Florida State's role, if we should have any role in keeping it alive, but if we can help them do it, if they want that help, we should be able to help them.
0: That's fascinating. I love that. Well, we have tons of great uh, content here, but is there anything else you would like to add or want the general population to know about this relationship with the Seminoles and what our community should be thinking about this?
1: Here, I'll give you a couple things. So one thing I hope all folks who care about Florida State know, or even folks who don't care about Florida State should know, is that our goal is to have FSU and the Seminole Tribe be something outside of athletics as well as athletics. So I think lots of people who follow college football, for example, um, there are probably many who are aware of, of the, the tribe coming out and vocally supporting FSU Uh, whatever, 16, 17 years ago when there was the the dispute with the NCAA. So lots of people are aware of that type of of connection. But I think they would be surprised at how long our relationship has been real as opposed to um, PR um, and what efforts are being made in the present to ensure that this relationship is not simply one that is within the confines of athletics, but rather a substantial outside of it. And so the center is really concerned with the intellectual component, um, the academic and the student component, uh, whether they're athletes or not. So that's the first thing I I really would want people to know. And the second thing I would want them to know is that we will have public-facing programming um, for students and for Tallahassee residents. Our goal is to have all of our programming open to the public. Uh, We have a website that is nais.fsu.edu. Native American Indigenous Studies, fsu.edu, or it's easy to find on Google or however you search the internet.
0: All right. Well, that's great. I want to thank you for taking the time on a busy week trying to get ready for a holiday break to come in and speak with me about this really just exciting opportunity and of what's happening at FSU in relation to the Seminole Tribe. So thank you for all that you're doing.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I hope I come back when we've are actually established.
0: I I definitely, it'll, we'll get you back for something even longer than this, but that would be great.
1: My name is Andrew Frank. I'm a professor of history at Florida State University, and I'm our director of our Native American and Indigenous Studies Center.